Schwab Advisor Services is proud to support the RIA Edge podcast and equally proud to support independent financial advisors like you. In a challenging year, how did 68% of firms surveyed in Schwab's RIA benchmarking study meet or exceed their new client goals? By following key success factors, such as leveraging new technology, adapting strategies to win new business and stay connected with their clients, while also attracting and developing the right talent. The Schwab RIA benchmarking study is just one of many ways they provide you with the insights and resources needed to succeed and grow. Get the full picture at advisorservices.schwab.com. Hi, and welcome to RA Edge. This is Mark Bruno, the Managing Director of Wealth Management at Informa Connect and the host of RA Edge. And we are very excited to have a special guest on here today, Neela Hummel, Hummel excuse me, the co-CEO of Abacus Wealth. And this is Neela's second day, if I'm, if I'm correct, on the That's job right. as co-CEO at Abacus. So congratulations and thank you for making the time for us. Thanks, Mark. Super excited to be here. I'm very excited to hear more about your new role, more about what's ahead for your firm and what the future looks like for Abacus Wealth. But before we do, and a lot of our listeners are probably familiar with Abacus from a distance, a very large firm, four and a half billion in assets under management, roughly. So you have about 70 employees now. So you are definitely, in the world of the RIAs, a more complex organization. Uh, so there's a lot that we can dive into here and a lot that our listeners can learn from this conversation. Before we get into you know, your strategy and what's ahead though, Neil, would you mind just giving a brief intro and an overview to Abacus, some of the clients that you work with, and also just a, a brief history of some of the roles that you've heard held at Abacus over the years? Yeah, uh, absolutely. So Abacus, you know, we're based in Santa Monica, but we have Santa Monica, California, but we do have offices throughout California. And we also have an office in Philadelphia. Um, you mentioned 4 billion under management, roughly 70 employees. Um, we've done a lot of work in this space of environmental and socially responsible investing, and have really transformed our brand around targeting clients who have an interest in finance, obviously financial planning, but in doing it in a more impactful way. Um, we were also, we were a founding B Corp. So the first financial services firm that was a B Corp. So basically lining up profit with purpose. We have been and will continue to be a purpose-driven business. Um, we give a portion of our profits to charity. Uh, we have mindfulness sessions for all employees four days a week. And we even have a meditation room in our Santa Monica office. So we're kind of the smart hippies of financial planning, if I were to coin that. I like it. I like it. It's uh, it's definitely a niche market. There's no question. And I, you know, I'm very, very interested to also learn a little bit about your background. I know that your unofficial title at Abacus can be resident nerd, which I, I right. love. Um, <laughs> and, and I aspire to be that one day. Um, but if you wouldn't mind, can you tell me just a little bit about your starting point at Abacus, some of the roles you hold, held over the years and how that led you to recently be named co-CEO? Yeah. Uh, so, you know, going all the way back, I've been with Abacus almost 13 years. I started as an unpaid intern, basically fought my way in the door to just understand what the only financial planning was all about and somehow talked them into giving me a job. So I've heard, I've held just about every job in the firm. Um, I started as an intern. I worked as a paraplanner, then as an advisor for a long time, a relationship manager, and then was um, the chief of advisors for several years. So in the C-suite overseeing the advisory department. 
And then lo and behold, a couple months ago, uh, they, they let me be co-CEO with the lovely Mary Beth. Yeah. And congrats to you and Mary Beth again for being named co-CEOs. It is highly unusual um, in this industry to see a firm that is run by two women. I don't know that I can recall another firm in the space that actually does have two women CEOs. So congratulations on the tremendous progress there. And it's also something that is obviously not just limited to the C-suite at Abacus. I read that over 50% of your advisors are women, which is well above the industry average. Can you tell us a little bit about that and how it aligns with the different types of clients that you serve? Yeah. uh, So about five years ago, I you know, looked around, I've been to so many industry events, and we all know the stats, there are very few women in this industry, it is a very old, white male industry. Uh, And I actually launched our women's initiative within Abacus, uh, what we refer to internally as the Abacus Sisterhood. And we have made a strong commitment to growing the diversity of the profession. Um, And so over time, we really have aimed to have a workforce that is more representative of the clients and, and really the demographics that exist, right? Um, so it's really not an accident. We've, done, we've been very intentional with both our benefits and how we really communicate to make sure that we're, we're expanding the diversity of, of our workforce. So the fact that it's rare to not only have you know, a female CEO, but you know, two young female CEOs mm-hmm. to me means that the industry has a long way to go, right? It shouldn't be that surprising. No, it's uh, amazing. I mean, the CFP board has some very good statistics on just the demo breakdowns of you know, the CFP holders. Um, and there's mm-hmm. been a little bit of progress over the last, I'd say decade or so, but it's right. still you know, a very small portion, especially when you look at who needs advice. Uh, right. the, the, the market that's providing it does not look like the market that needs it right now. So I'm glad to hear, you know, all the different things that you're doing there and how things are progressing. Yeah. You know, and I I could just add on to that in terms of the people who are really looking for advice is we've got a lot of women who are now coming into a lot of wealth, right? Women have a longer life expectancy. They're more likely to be inheritors and, you know, be, be widowed and are, are really becoming the primary decision makers around wealth. And we do have a lot of women who come looking for an advisor who are looking explicitly to work with another woman or another woman. And um, women make great advisors. Oh, that is for sure. And I think remember years ago, actually writing an article or the headline was, you know, women are not a niche. Um, and I don't know yeah. why it just became so clear at that point. You're talking about you know, half of the population, of more in some cases. Right. <laughs> uh, we refer to it as, as, as a niche. It most certainly is not. And I am curious, you know, as we kind of step back and we look at the Abacus story, I'm assuming that has contributed to your, your growth, obviously, and help, has helped you really define your value proposition and the services that you can deliver to the different market. But I mean, tell us how has being focused and how has just the, the, the DNA uh, that you've described at, at Abacus, how has that contributed to some of the growth that you've had in recent years? I think one of the things that we've always tried to do, and I say, I say try because I think it's almost impossible to get it right. But the fact that we're always trying to be better in that we're really trying to be good humans. And as we've designed our you know, benefits and who we hire and why we hire, we hire with a, 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 a prism of values. We want to make sure that people are, are being, they're additive to our culture, right? So people look for, you know, when you're hiring and they say, oh, we need them to be a cultural fit. 
it's actually a, one way that you can contribute to bias in the workplace. And so we're always looking for culture and all of the things that we try and do. We want to support people in every aspect of their life, not just while they're at work. So we've done some really interesting things around parental leave policy, where we created a, a, a policy that it works for you know moms, dads, adoptees, what have you, six months of parental leave. We have people, they can ship their breast milk across the country if they're on a, a work trip while they're breastfeeding. Things that just, we, we want to meet people where they are and design work so that it's a, it's a nice extension of home. Not so that people don't have work-life balance, but that work isn't something you necessarily have to get away from because you're actually enjoying the work that you're doing and that you have time to pursue other things that are not just work. So before we actually get into the contributors to the growth or the sort of break down the assets a little bit, the, the asset growth, I would love to talk about the shape and the structure of your team, right? Now it's 70 people. That's a very large firm for you know, yeah. the RIA industry. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about some of the roles um, that have evolved, some of the roles that you've added, and a sense just for the, the general structure that you have at Abacus right now? Yeah. So for our advisory structure, we primarily use the Angie Herber's diamond team model. So currently we have, we have eight different diamond teams, but we, as you alluded to, there are a number of layers that are now needed based on our size, right? And so we're now brought in just my role that I'm now coming out of the chief of advisor role. That was kind of a new role um, before the relationship managers who, who kind of run those diamond teams were able to report directly to the president. Um, and then it just got, it just got too big. Um, so we have introduced a couple of layers, which obviously creates communication challenges uh, across the board. Um, but that's really been our movement to our current C-suite structure uh, has been a response to our growth. Uh, so we now have an advisory department, we have an operations department, uh, finance department and our new, you know, our growth department, which is also encapsulates some of our marketing and MA and just general grassroots recruiting. Yeah. And I appreciate that, right? That shows just that top line structure of what a mature RIA looks like. Um, and I think you're, you're probably constantly thinking of yourself as, you know, growing and maturing versus, you know, being fully established and mature. But right. that is, you know, at the core, if you kind of break it down, I think what a lot of firms, you know, aspire to be. And in that growth department, if you don't mind, can you just spend a little bit more time as to what goes into that engine, if you will, the different roles and the different areas of focus that they have? Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting. The, the big pieces in it are the M&A. Uh, mm -hmm. So we have done a number of M&A deals over the last decade or so. And so that is a part of our business. It has been, and will continue to be a part of our business. Um, we also have marketing. Um, so Mary Beth, my co-CEO, who can't join us today, um, but she joined us, you know, three plus years ago and really helped us transform our brand voice. Um, and so that's under that that growth umbrella. Uh, we also have our director of impact under there. So I mentioned we are a founding B Corp and we have strong commitments to DEI and mm -hmm. in really making sure that we're we're being impactful with our presence in the industry and and for clients. And so all those pieces really connect as well as just kind of general innovation projects that might not have a home in another department, right? Some areas of another business line that we might want to explore, some sort of other opportunity that 
needs to be flushed out a little bit more before it's integrated into the rest of the firm. Okay. That's great. That's very helpful because I think that provides a little bit of a framework, maybe even a blueprint for some other firms that might not be where you are now, right? But aspire to get there and are thinking about different ways that they could accelerate their growth and make sure that they're prioritizing things like market uh, marketing and more M and A um, driven growth. And you know, along those lines, I'd love to just get into the detail a little bit on some of the recent growth that you've had. Um, as I mentioned at the outset, you have roughly 4.4, 4.5 billion in assets. Depends if we did this interview last week, it'd probably be slightly lower. Um, right. But, Don't judge us. <laughs> <laughs> but we'd love to just get a sense for if you were to break it down, what comes from M&A, what comes from organic growth, and how do you actually think about each from a strategic and a, you know, an executive level? Yeah, I love that question just because there's no one size fits all. Um, So we've done roughly eight M&A deals over the last 12 years. And the nice thing about doing a bunch of small deals, small to mid-sized deals, is we've learned a lot along the way. And uh, so we've done M&A at different points for different reasons. So if we have, for example, a lot of advisory capacity, then we're looking more at the A of M&A, right? We're looking for a retiring advisor's book that we could buy or uh, you know, some way to kind of fill up the existing capacity that we have. Uh, there's also opportunity for people who are, are hitting kind of a traditional growth barrier, right? A one or two person shop who knows that they need to make that next leap of investment to you know, bring on more people to kind of invest further in the business and maybe aren't wanting to do that. They want to spend more time Mm -hmm. working with their clients and they don't necessarily want to be a manager. Um, Those can be really great opportunities. Um, And then also if we're looking, if we kind of are from an advisory capacity standpoint, then we might want to look for another firm that has some extra capacity that we could bring in and, you know, integrate them and get them up to speed so they can help us um, with our clients. And I think with all of that, the most important thing that I think we've learned along the way is that values alignment is key, right? Is that it's want to make sure that you're not disrupting your current ship by introducing kind of some, some different cultural variables. Um, you want to make sure that they're, you know, contributing and, and adding to the culture, but that it, that it really works. Yeah. And that's not an easy thing to do. Um, having nope. been through that process myself, spending some time in the investment banking and consulting world, you need the culture fit and the culture ad that you've mentioned. Right. Um, exactly. But I have, I, I, this is a guess here. I could be off base. You are really clear on who you are as a firm right, and who you want to be. Yes. Um, so I would imagine, but correct me if I am wrong, that people have a pretty good understanding of who you are and your smell test, right? I hate that term, but right. I use a lot. Yeah. It's <laughs> probably pretty efficient. Right. And I think that, you know, that goes for both M&A as well as clients is that we mm. want to, to repel some people. We want to deter some people, right? The first rule of marketing is that if you're everything to everybody, well, then, then you're kind of the Chinese restaurant that also does pizza and that also does burritos. And you're kind of like, well, what is it that you do well? Uh, right. I want to kind of help people know that like, we're really not for everybody. I've been in a mm. number of, you know, potential client meetings where it's so clear where it's like, we're just actually not the right fit for you. And it would be a disservice to both of us, really, for us to kind of let this go further. I'd love to connect you with somebody who could be a better fit for you. And what, what have you learned just out of curiosity about the M&A 
process, you know, having done eight different deals, that's pretty sizable. Um, and granted, it was spread out over you know, several years, uh, but there's been so much activity and a lot of the, the M&A activity has been really led by professional buyers. I certainly wouldn't put you in that category by any means. So I'm curious when you're evaluating, when you've done deals, what have you learned and how have you applied that to some of the opportunities that you're evaluating now? Yeah. What I would say is that the easiest deals for us have been the smaller deals, the more of the the tuck-in approach. So the kind of one to two people shops tend to be easier to integrate. Um, There are some pieces that have been made things a lot easier in terms of uh, you know, what systems people are using, what investments they're using, and just ways to make it as you know, easier on our operational team. Um, because we do, you do ask the operations team to do a really heavy lift with M&A. Uh, and it's really important that we don't uh, devalue that because they do some serious heavy lifting. So I think size, you know, those kind of one to two tuck-ins have been, have, have been easier to integrate. And then the second piece, and you kind of alluded to this already, Mark, is why you're doing M&A, really being clear as to what that deal represents, right? Is it an aqua hire? Are you looking to bring on a particular person to be uh, uh, in a particular role? So for example, Mary Beth, she had her own firm and she merged in because she was going to become our chief marketing officer. She was a she was a strategic aqua hire. And so just really understanding what the goal of, of the deal is, uh, because every Every M&A deal should be accretive, accretive to existing shareholders. That, that should be a given. It's, it's what is it beyond that? Oh, absolutely. And I think it, controlled, manageable you know, M&A is <laughs> the best type. And it seems like you have a clear process and a clear focus when you're going and exploring M&A opportunities. On, on the other end of the, the growth spectrum, though, looking more at some of the organic growth that you've experienced when you look at growth that comes through your marketing or your business development, uh, what have been some of the areas where you've had the most success there and why? So I think from a, from an uh, organic growth standpoint, we really invest a lot in our advisors. We really care about bringing people up into the industry and we hire people who don't necessarily have finance backgrounds. It is not a prerequisite to come from finance. Um, it, it, it happens, but we bring people, a lot of career changers you know, from a lot of different industries. So I think one of the things that's helped us a lot is our robust training program. We bring people in with no experience and teach them how to be advisors in roughly two years and focus very heavily on mentorship. And that we think that does a good thing for the industry because it, it allows people mm-hmm. to actually get their foot in the door, right? I mean, how many people are you looking at? They're like, I'd like to hire an advisor with 10 to 15 years of experience and you know, all these things that they're, they're kind of looking for a unicorn. And yeah. we, we find that we do a better job growing those people internally um, and really letting the, their previous experiences make them better advisors, right? That they come from all different walks of life. So that's something that I'm really proud of what we've done uh, in, in, you know, turning people into that. I was a former software engineer. Is that right? I did not realize that. And I, I, I didn't realize that you had brought so many other, so many people in from other industries. Um, you mentioned it's a two-year program, um, which seems like a long time, but in reality probably isn't. Um, right. How, how's, maybe success rate isn't the right term, but how many people actually go through the program in its entirety versus those that you know, may go through just the initial training process and determine it's not 
for them. I imagine there's a little bit of that, but I am curious. Yeah. So we, we've now been doing it long enough that we actually have decent data around it and mm-hmm. that our stats are that roughly one in four associate advisors um, doesn't make it. Uh, okay. And so it's a, you know, there's a 75% survival rate. Um, I, I'd like to use a different term, but it is, it is a really tough program. And, and yeah. part of the reason that we're able to do that is be based on the clients that we serve. So we do not have a million dollar minimum, which is very common in our industry. And as a consequence of that, we bring in what we refer to as a lot of builders, people who are still building up their net worth. And it actually works out really well when you have newer advisors who are are getting comfortable working with clients um, independently for them to work on some of these early builder clients and, and be able to practice and and really learn how to be an independent advisor with with some kind of lower lower AUM type clients. And when you're bringing people through the training program and then they're starting out on an advisory track, is it is it just that? Is there a clear track or a career path that you can demonstrate to them that says, you know, if you do this in the next three to five years? this is your next role. And then you know, yep. beyond, here's what you can aspire to be. Yep. Uh, so that's something that, that I really focused very heavily on over the last several years in, in, in my role as chief of advisors. We had a really flushed out associate advisor career path, but we didn't really have anything for our lead advisors. And so now what we have are both. We have full associate career path, as well as a lead advisor career path. So we can bring somebody in the door and basically say, Hey, this is what your career could look like over the next Mm -hmm. 10 to 15 years. Right. And these are the different markers along the way, which people care about because it's, it's so common in our industry to be hired into a role and then just kind of get stuck in that role. And that if you're not, if you're not growing, you're dying. And we want everybody to be focusing on growing, um, even though everybody grows at different rates. And so while I say that two year plus or minus, you know, we have some people who have taken longer and we have some people who've done it in even less time. Yeah, that's great. It's incredibly unique. Uh, I know a lot of management consultants who preach the importance of doing that. Um, I know far fewer firms that actually do it and have done it effectively. So congratulations on putting a real process in place. And I think it could actually be a, an amazing model for the industry at large. I am curious in one question. We've talked about the way you're bringing talent into the organization and developing talent. You also mentioned before this growth engine, this growth team that you have. Um, I'm not quite sure where business development or client acquisition lands in that. Is that a, an advisor's responsibility? Is there a business development team? Where, where does that responsibility live within Abacus? Yeah, so it's somewhat shared. Um, so we okay. do generate clients just from our presence in the industry and our brand. Uh, and so we do have clients who come in as a consequence of our marketing. Um, but we also do spend a lot of time training our advisors to do some degree of business development. We want everybody to know how to conduct a prospect meeting and how to, you know, bring, bring clients in. And then some advisors, you know, what we see is again, roughly that one to four, some advisors have more of an interest in it. And those Mm -hmm. are the people that we kind of put on our relationship manager track so that they can spend more time out doing business development, connecting with COIs, et cetera. 
Okay, got it. And then do those relationship managers, do they actually manage clients on any level or are they just handing mm-hmm. them off to the teams? They do manage. Um, some There are some that pass clients off completely, you know, okay. and it's based on client fit, right? Who can serve that client the best? And oftentimes mm-hmm. the person that's bringing that potential client in might not be the best person to really service them. And so we really, we focus as a team to make sure what is right for the client and what supports the firm overall and try to avoid the, the, the ego that can come with, you know, the, the rainmaker, I guess, pressure and, um, uh, and, and, and kind of attention. We want everybody to do it, but because it's the right thing for the client and it's the right thing for the firm. That's great to know. And it's, it's amazing that you, you can have that level of flexibility and it works. That's how you know you've built something amazing. And, and as we wind down here, I did want to talk a little bit about what's ahead, of course. Um, I mentioned at the outset that you were on day two as the co-CEO of Abacus. <laughs> so I've got it all figured so, out. No worries. <laughs> so you had all day yesterday to figure it out. But what are some, some of your initial goals and objectives as you kind of look out at the, the year ahead and beyond now that you're in the new role as co-CEO? Yeah. So looking forward, you know, the interesting thing, taking on this role, you know, close to two years into a pandemic where everybody's got different degrees of of struggle, right? There are a lot of places out there, even our custodians are feeling short staffed. We are really focusing on our team and our clients. And so making sure that we're, we're very committed to a more hybrid approach to working. Uh, we, we have several offices, but we've also started doing some strategic remote hiring. And we really want to do a good job of that. And so I think where Mary Beth and I are focusing is just kind of recognizing that we're a year and a half, two years into a pandemic, we want to focus on making the the hybrid work environment look really good and efficient, right? And that we're using technology in a way that makes us better and more efficient and frees people's time up. And yeah, and then just kind of transitioning with all of the changes that we've had and, and really looking ahead. Yeah, I think uh, so much has changed over the last two years. It's hard to keep track. Um, and I think right. I've asked that question just about every RIA Edge interview is, you know, what, what do we take with us, right? If and when we go from, you know, pandemic to, you know, endemic, if you will, as a word that I've heard thrown around lately. Um, and that's right. how I feel yeah. about it. But you know, it's it seems like hopefully, you know, we're starting to emerge to a more you know, normal environment. And I'm glad to hear that you you are embracing this hybrid model. Uh, how do you think just from a client perspective though, things have changed, right? You you must have been interacting with them over the last couple of years in ways that you never really have before. So I'm curious what the advisor client dynamic looks like moving forward in your view? Yeah, you know, in some ways, I think the advisor client dynamic is going to evolve very much the way employee, uh, you know, kind of our, our, our dynamic with, with employees and, and really being in the office is that I feel like there's a really nice middle step. I think we could, it was very easy to take advantage or to take for granted seeing each other five days a week and seeing clients in person four times a year. And that now, you know, maybe it's a mix, right? Maybe you meet one time in person a year and then you you really kind of treasure that time a little bit more versus taking it for granted because mm-hmm. people are busy, right? I have three kids, five and under, just being able to work from home more for me 
gives me so much more time and latitude to be a better, well, I guess, CEO and advisor and, and really parent. And I think letting some of those lessons carry over so that we're really appreciative and intentional of the time that we're spending with each other, whether that's clients or employees, I think is a huge gift. And I don't, I don't want to lose that. Yeah, no, it's a very, it's a very true point. Um, I notice even with my own advisor tend to communicate now when we need to, not just when it's scheduled. Um, So it does feel a little bit more natural and a little bit more organic. And, And I don't want to miss the opportunity to congratulate you for making it 30 minutes into a podcast. You have three kids under the age of five and two dogs in the house. And I haven't heard any background noise. That is an oh. amazing accomplishment. Well, I, I just want to give a huge shout out to our educators <laughs> and daycare providers because without them right now, I feel like I'm in Hawaii because March <laughs> of 2020, I had a three-year-old and one-year-old was pregnant and the market was down 30%. Um, yeah. This feels like a honeymoon. So this is easy. Well, good. I'm glad that you were able to find a quiet space for a little bit and share more about your story, the Abacus story with me and with our listeners. I've observed Abacus from a distance, had the chance to talk with different people from the company over the years, but this is by far the most extensive conversation I've had. And I've learned a tremendous amount about what you've accomplished there. And I give you a lot of credit for doing things in a very unique, purposeful way. Um, and I'm no surprised to see you know, how much success you've had over the years. Before we let you run, is there anything else that you would share with our audience? Is somebody who is running an RIA firm that is maybe where Abacus was 10 years ago, uh, but is really thinking about taking their business to the next level, any final bit of advice on how they can drive some intentional and strategic growth? Ooh. So I feel like the first thing that I would say, and I'm going to, I'm going to give my dad credit for this one is, you know, don't let perfect be the enemy of good. We all want to make really good decisions, but it's almost impossible to make the perfect decision. And so try things out, make mistakes, but make a decision, right? Because if you kind of wait for it to be the perfect decision, whether it's the perfect deal, uh, you're not going to, you're not going to move. And so you can always change, just make a decision and try something out and know that you're not going to get it right every time. Yeah, that is a great piece of advice. And not just because maybe it's a dad thing. I tell my two daughters all the time, perfect is the enemy of done. And they're yeah. so sick of hearing it, but sometimes just do it and move on to the next Right. Thing. And, you know, I'm a recovering <laughs> perfectionist and it, it's, it's a constant struggle, but just doing something because you, you learn a lot in the process and you can always make a change. Yeah. Yeah. No, that is very true. And it is a Great way to end here. So, Neil, thank you very much for spending some time here. Congrats again on your new position. We appreciate you stopping by RAA Edge. Thanks, Mark. It was a pleasure. And thank you again to our audience for joining us here. We hope you found this interview with Neil Hummel, the co-CEO of Abacus Wealth, to be very, very informative. I learned a lot. I'm sure you did too as well. And we look forward to having you back at the next episode of RAA Edge. On behalf of the Wealth Management and Informa and Wealth Management, I'm Mark Bruno. We'll see you next time. Schwab Advisor Services is proud to support the RIA Edge podcast and equally proud to support independent financial advisors like you. In a challenging year, how did 68% of firms surveyed in Schwab's RIA benchmarking study meet or exceed their new client goals? By following key success factors such as leveraging new technology, adapting strategies to win new business, and stay connected with their clients, while also attracting and developing the right talent. The Schwab RIA benchmarking study is just one of many ways 
They provide you with the insights and resources needed to succeed and grow. Get the full picture at advisorservices.schwab.com.